Welcome to Rusk, insights on rehabilitation medicine, a top podcast featuring interviews with thought leaders in the field of PM and R from Rusk Rehabilitation at NYU Langone Medical Center and other prominent rehab medicine institutions. Your host for these interviews is Dr. Tom Elwood. He will take you behind the scenes to look at what is transpiring in the exciting world of rehabilitation research and clinical services through the eyes of those involved in making dynamic breakthroughs in healthcare. So listen, learn, and enjoy. Hello, and welcome to another episode in the Rusk Rehabilitation Podcast Series. Today's interview is one of many that will make it possible to learn about developments in the field of rehabilitation aimed at improving the lives of patients. I'm honored to have as today's guest, Liz Dunro, who is a Senior Placement and Rehabilitation Counselor in Rusk's Vocational Rehabilitation Department at NYU Langone Health. Thank you for being here today. Thanks for having me. Well, you're most welcome. With over 17 years' experience in the field of rehabilitation, she has expertise in counseling individuals with complex medical conditions, including traumatic brain injury, spinal cord injury, and amputation, and returning to work. Her focus is on career counseling, work readiness, job placement, and employment retention. Liz served on NYU Langone Medical Center's Accessibility Committee and is an active member of the New York City Placement Consortium Network. She has presented at multiple National Rehabilitation Association annual conferences, reporting on evidence-based return-to-work methodology. She is currently employed as a contractor for the U.S. Department of Labor Office of Workers' Compensation, assisting with return-to-work goals for injured workers. She holds a Master of Science degree in Rehabilitation Counseling from Hofstra University and is a Certified Rehabilitation Counselor. So regarding the challenges that older workers, in particular with disabilities, might face in trying to obtain jobs, how is old being defined in this case? For example, does the term refer to retirement age individuals, or does it include those at younger ages? That's a good question. I I think typically we speak about 55 plus. Most statistics talk about the older worker in that manner. I know here at Rusk, our referrals for individuals with ages 55 and up have increased significantly. Actually, from 2009 until present, they've increased from 14 to 20%. We're a small program, and that's quite a significant number. We often have referrals with people who are in their upper late 70s or even 80s who want to continue to work or or return to work, mostly for financial reasons, but I think also for a social outlet as well. What kinds of personal factors of a positive nature would you associate with enabling rehabilitation patients to be active again in the workforce, and what kinds of factors possibly might act as a deterrent? Well, I think people who stand out, candidates that have a really strong work ethic, that have worked for many years, that's really a big part of their life, tend to have better outcomes. People who have long-term experience, certainly some transferable skills, and I think family support is important too. I think some of the challenges that we see are people who have fear and anxiety, mostly due to lack of perhaps computer skills or technical skills. They also share that they're feeling discriminated. They're going into this feeling that they don't, they're not going to have a positive outcome. So I think that's certainly a deterrent. 
Does it make any difference in the, the kind of work, for example, a white-collar worker who's been working in an office versus someone who's a mechanic, an electrician, a carpenter, and those lines of work? Sure, yeah. So we see we very often see professionals that um, want to return to their previous job. And with counseling and perhaps making some reasonable accommodations, that's quite often possible. I do think it's sometimes more challenging when it's a blue-collar worker, like your example of somebody who's a mechanic who perhaps doesn't have the educational background to compete for today's jobs. So that sometimes is more challenging. But again, we look at, you know, certain transferable skills and certainly what industry they're in. So somebody perhaps who was working as a mechanic in a certain industry perhaps could be working in sales or in a wholesale distributor for the type of industry. So we, we try to look at what industries they've worked in and possible ability to transfer into other positions within that industry. So that's one example. Yeah, thank you for that clarification. What impact does the overall state of the economy have on the prospects of finding suitable jobs for the kinds of individuals that you've been working with? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a strong economy helps everybody. I think that um, in the last several years, because of the economy, we've been able to help many more people. They just seem to be more opportunities. So in general, a strong economy, um, there has been years when it's been tighter, and that's always more of a challenge. But again, a big piece of what we do is trying to network and build relationships with businesses. So during any economic situation that we have some contacts and and networking opportunities for some of the individuals in our program. But yeah, certainly um, right now it's it's a strong market (laughs) and I think that's helped our candidates strongly. When I introduced you, I mentioned your involvement with the U.S. Department of Labor. Do you work with any other government and private sector organizations to enable older individuals to become employed? And if so, please let our listeners know what some of those groups might be. So one of the, our major uh, referrals come from Access VR, which is a state agency. It's part of Department of Education, and their role is to help people to continue or education or help with employment services. And so that's a rather large government agency that helps people of all ages, people with all disabilities. We also work very closely with GoodTemps, which is a subsidiary of Goodwill Industries, and they help us to facilitate opportunities with many temporary city agencies in New York City. So that's been a really strong relationship that I think has helped many of our candidates to kind of get back into the workforce, even in a temporary nature, but people who perhaps might have a work gap temporary employment sometimes overlooks that. So that's always been a really great relationship. We also work with Reserve, which is a program that works with people who are 55 plus in kind of obtaining mostly part-time subsidized employment. And then there's also a website, jobs.aarp.org, which has a list of job postings. They partner with Kelly Services and Manpower for that. And that's, again, targeting people who are 55 plus. So those are some organizations that we work with. We also work with the mayor's office with people with disabilities that has a recent initiative, also trying to connect individuals with disabilities with mostly city agencies, but they also have private sector opportunities as well. So a lot of what we do is networking. Well, it's good to know there are all of those resources out there to take advantage of. Given the wide range of health problems that warrant rehabilitation for patients, such as recovering from a stroke, cancer, cardiac conditions, 
traumatic brain injury. Please indicate if there were barriers and facilitators viewed by potential employers that may distinguish these health conditions from one another. For example, take any of the that I just mentioned. Is there anything that might probably cause a little more reluctance on the part of a potential employer versus some other condition? Do you encounter that at all? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a good question. I think that sometimes people who have had a stroke or, or TBI, a traumatic brain injury, it might be less understood from employers. They might have concerns more about cognitive functions and how that's going to affect somebody in employment. I question whether maybe cardiac and cancer are more understood. They might have more personal experience with that, whether it be friends or family members or themselves. So in general, I I think that sometimes that comes up and a big part of what we do is trying to educate employers and also counsel our patients here for self-advocacy and explaining what their what accommodations they might need. One possible facilitating factor might be having the support of one's family rather than if the individual is living alone. How important is such family support in enabling patients to obtain jobs and stay in the labor force? Sure. No, I think I think family support is always important. Unfortunately, not all of our patients have that. So we always advocate people to work with a mental health provider, perhaps, to seek out friends for that support. And of course, a program like ours, where we meet with people on a regular basis. Some, while, while most of it is job search, we also do supportive counseling. So I think people have found that helpful. And you touched upon this next question in, in your previous response, but I'll just see if maybe you can elaborate a little further. Do you ever encounter situations where stigma by employers may play a role in producing a weariness or some unwillingness to hire individuals with various kinds of health problems? And if so, how do you deal with those situations? Well, I think there's certainly been increased media attention to mental health, and I think that's really helped. I think, unfortunately, there's still some stigma there. I think a lot of what we try to do is, again, educate employers also by by employers seeing if they've had a successful candidate from our program, that, again, uh, makes them less reluctant to perhaps consider another candidate with a mental health diagnosis. We really, again, talk about counseling here and, and for self-advocacy. So while we try to educate employers, I think the patient's do best when we help them for their own self-advocacy. So apart from the workplace itself in the kind of services that you're providing to patients and clients, are there any different challenges involved in providing vocational rehabilitation services for individuals who have physical versus mental impairments? And if so, please describe what such differences might be. Well, I think it depends I think a lot of it depends on the person as well. Again, mental impairments tend to be hidden, um, although some physical impairments are also hidden. I think what we hear a lot from our patients is, you know, sometimes when it's not hidden, it's almost easier to talk about and to be able to ask for accommodations. It's more when there's a hidden disability, again, if it's mental health or even in, be it physical, that people tend to be more reluctant to ask for help and they're not sure they feel that that's going to deter an employer from hiring them and are uncomfortable in general about speaking about that. And I think it's important for it to be a collaborative effort, you know, for employment to work, the employer and the employee need to work together. 
to really come up with accommodations that are reasonable to be able to allow the person to work in their capacity the best they can. And on the topic of accommodations, if so, in what ways, what kinds of things would employers have to do in some of these situations? Sure. You know, a lot of people think that accommodations is just a physical barrier, right? They, they tend to think somebody who uses a wheelchair, we need to ensure that they have accessibility. But that's really just one small piece of it. Accommodations can be job sharing. It could be a flexible schedule. It could be lighting in a room. Very often we work with people who have concussion or head injury that perhaps um, would do better in an office environment with more dim light. Technology, we have a lot of patients that are using voice activation software such as Dragon Naturally Speaking, and those are all kind of low-cost, inexpensive ways to accommodate a potential employee. There's also a great resource called JAN. It's called the Job Accommodations Network, and it's a great resource for both employees and employers, and they're helpful in talking about what is a reasonable accommodation what and and given some suggestions as far as accommodations. They break it down into all different disability groups, including learning disability or autism spectrum disorder. So that's a great resource. Many individuals today who do not have any disabilities of any kind have jobs in which they're telecommuting so that they're primarily working at home and infrequently go to an office. Are there any opportunities for some of these patients to have that type of a situation which eliminates any problems associated with transportation and everything else where they can pretty much work at home and still get the job done that the employer wants? Yeah, I think it's a case-by-case basis. I think it tends to be more that people who are going back to a position they they previously held can sometimes negotiate working from home for as far as a new position, unless it's it's already clear that it's a telecommuting position. I think sometimes it's challenging, but it's really a case-by-case basis. And among the patients with whom you work, what proportion of them want to return to an existing job? And the other side of it would be a proportion that end up being employed in something totally different that really may not be related at all to their previous work experience. Sure. Yeah, it's a mix. I would say many of the people we see that work at a professional level, because they've, you know, invested years of, and and that's where they're their expertise is, would like to stay in their position. And that's that's very often the case, that it's possible to somebody to go back to work with accommodations. I think it's generally uh, people, perhaps maybe with mental health diagnoses, that feel they need a change, maybe a less pressured system, maybe different work culture. Sometimes, again, blue-collar workers that perhaps can't go back to that position. Those are the type of candidates that we work with that perhaps want to change a career. And then again, we look at transferable skills and try to counsel them accordingly. A body of knowledge already exists for vocational rehabilitation. Do you see the field benefiting in any way from additional kinds of research? And if so, what types of studies do you think it would be valuable to conduct? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting when we've done some presentations, a lot of the data out there seems to be older. So I do think that some updated data about people returning to previous positions, as you said, you know, just kind of more updated data. There's also a lot more, I see an increase in in referrals for post-concussion, also autism spectrum disorder. And I think that could be helpful for more research to be done 
to kind of follow some of those individuals and to see about the return to work placement rates and what are some of the strategies that are being used, particularly for those people with those disabilities. Liz Donro, I'm going to conclude this interview by thanking you for sharing your insights with our listeners about your activities involving vocational rehabilitation. It has been both an honor and a pleasure to have this discussion with you today, and I wish you continued success in all your endeavors. Again, thank you very much. Terrific. Thank you for having me. Thank you again for joining us. You can learn more about Rusk at nyulangone.org slash Rusk. Also, be sure to follow this podcast on Twitter at Rusk Podcast.